I think that you may be good at a lot of things or you may um, have a lot of aspirations, but in the end, you know, what do you want to be famous for? Is it for who you are or for what you do? Welcome to the 100 CEO Project Podcast. Hello, dear listeners. We're here today for another episode of the 100 CEO Project Podcast. Today with our guest, Priscilla McKinney, the CEO and mama bird of Little Bird Marketing, an agency based in Joplin, Missouri, that has developed its own SOAR system to guide client activity. In addition to being an awarded marketer and business leader, Priscilla is also an international speaker and as we learned, a traveling singer with her four sisters. I do hope we are gonna to get to hear that story sometime during the show today. She's a teacher of digital transformation and social influence and her podcast, Ponderings from the Perch, covers a wide variety of marketing topics. So definitely check that out as well. Priscilla, thank you so much for being here. Okay, this is gonna be really fun. And I really like that intro. So I feel like I have a lot to live up to. <laughs> <laughs> So in spite of everything that happened last year, you managed to be acknowledged as a top 50 influencer in your industry. Can you tell us about these silver linings and your response to the crisis and then where you're sitting with everything going on right now? Wow. Yeah. So um, the COVID crisis was not the first crisis I've been through in my business. Um, and I'm sure for many people, that's true. A lot of people have gone through, you know, the recession in 2009, a lot of people who have experienced you know, they've been through hard things. It's, it, you know, that's in their personal lives and their professional lives. Um, but for me, it was a little bit more poignant back in 2011, after we went through the 2009 recession, um, I had, uh, um, uh, we went through the only F5 tornado on record here in the US, here in Joplin. And in about 22 minutes, we lost about 35% of our town. And so that crisis was obviously uh, very difficult. <laughs> um, on the other hand, we were in it together, right? And so we had a really beautiful outpouring of the business community. Everybody was helping everybody. We learned at that point, do what you can for who you can for as long as you can. You know, and just, it was this, that mentality for quite a while. Um, but three weeks into that, and I had been very, you know, <laughs> neck deep in helping all of the clients that I had, really come back online, figure out, I mean, we couldn't even get, we, there were no roads. I mean, we, we couldn't even get computers, you know, you know there was, it was just major, major infrastructure stuff. And uh, three weeks later, I was standing on the sidewalk watching my creative studio burn to the ground. And so in that moment, I think it's a very different crisis. One, you're in a community who's in crisis and pulling together. And the next one, I'm in a crisis that really only I understand. And I think the juxtaposition of those two things really created um, a, a, a dichotomy, almost like a, you know, a depth maybe of experience um, there. Now, obviously, so many people helped me, and I certainly wasn't doing it alone, but you do feel that in some ways. And I think you can feel the difference between something everybody's experiencing and something you alone are experiencing. And so I say that as a preface only to say when COVID hit, I think I was a little bit more prepared than other people. It was a little bit more settled. And I felt like, you know, I do have something to offer. I do um, have some consolation for people or maybe a bigger picture thinking that could, you know, just maybe assuage some of the confusion and some of the very high stress that everyone was feeling. Um, and so I came really out and used my social influence um, to, create some very specific messages that were, hey, everybody, it's going to be okay. 
you know, and I, I gave a couple of piece, pieces of guidance and not just like, oh, it's okay. I mean, nobody wants that kind of a pat on the back. Don't worry. Don't worry. No, we should worry. We should worry about certain things, but we should worry in a way where our energy is going to the right places. And we should worry about things like taking care of our clients, taking care of our employees, taking care of ourselves. And so uh, that's a long story to say that, you know, when COVID hit, I felt like I was prepared and I was able to take a stage very quickly and lead with uh, even a hashtag I started called always be helping and trying to get people together, say, how can we help each other? You're not someone who needs help or someone who can help. You are both. So figure out what you need and how you can help someone with their needs. And so I used my stage in that way to really help people navigate through. And that has paid back to me. I've made a lot of very uh, deep, deep relationships with people and helped significant companies through very hard times. And those people now have turned around and helped me. So what did that look like? Can you give us some tangible examples in your, in your area of your circle of, of colleagues? Yeah. 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 That's a good question. For me, it really meant calling and checking on clients and having that heart to heart and say, what, what can I help you with? Let's just take money off the table. What, what's going on? How do we need to pivot? I know we had a system. I know you're paying me a retainer, but let's forget about it for a minute. What do you need? Um, who on your team needs it? What can I do? Um, could we just stop and think creatively about it? Um, even some clients who said, oh my gosh, I think I, I need to pause my contract. Well, I could hold them to a contract or I could be a, a decent human being and say, okay, I get that. Let's just pump brakes. Let's figure out what we need to do. Um, so you need to have those one-on-one -on -one conversations. You need to also get in touch with your, your employees. They're afraid, you know, they're looking to you for answers and you don't have to have all the answers, but you have to tell them that you understand that they need some and that your, you, you know, your mind is focused on them and their well-being and their family and the bills that they have to come up. So giving them as much information as you can upfront is how it helps. How it helped in my industry is that I, like I said, I use my social influence and what that looked like is that I, I did videos on LinkedIn and I just said, hey guys, this is, this, I, you know, more of a personal you know, connection. I also got involved and really highlighted other things that people were doing. I don't have to do all the good, but I can use my influence to start highlighting other people and the amazing things they were doing. They were doing amazing things, but they didn't have as wide of a network as I had. And so I amplified their message. And there was a great friend of mine, Patrick Oslowski, who did uh, caring connections. He was like, hey, what can you do professionally to help someone? And what do you need? And he started matching people up. I just gave him the run of my influence. It's like, how can I get more people on there for you? And so it's really beautiful how people can lead with how can we just help? So it looked like for me, a lot of conversations. And then the last thing that happened was I gave away a lot of digital transformation training for free. I did a lot of hour and a half um, with companies, companies that I knew, even large companies, large companies, small companies. I said, I'll give you an hour and a half, get all of your salespeople on the line. And I'll teach what I usually charge 30 grand for, you know, and let's just help them pivot and, and, and quit freaking out about, you know, I used to get my sales quota by meeting people for coffee and for dinner and for lunch and breakfast and whatever. And now I realize I'm not ahead of the game because I don't have a digital presence and now I don't know what to do. And so I gave a lot of training away for free. Um, to just do what I could. I, I can't give away my trade secrets. I can't give, you know, I can't do that forever, but I could get in there and help assuage a little bit of that anxiety. 
So generous. I love what you said on our last call that was, you know, we're people who need help too, meaning mm-hmm. CEOs. So do you, do you think that that's hard for a lot of CEOs to ask for help? Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I guess I'd say, it, unfortunately it is, but the reality is like the actual mechanism of asking for help. It's the same for every human. It's hard for every human, but yes, a CEO position can feel very isolating um, at times. And I do think that it is hard to ask for help if you're not used to it. It's one of those things that I think requires practice. And I think people don't understand that. You can't just be someone who never asked for help and the next day be someone who asked for help. You have to do them in small little increments. This has to be a way of life. It has to be a practice. It has to be a mindset that I am someone who you know needs help. And it kind of brings me back to one of my famous quotes um, that I really, really love. And that's that any idiot can face a crisis. It's the day-to-day that'll wear you out. And I have to say, a lot of people kind of look back and say, oh my gosh, you went through this tornado, you went through, you know, fire. Look, that's easy. Uh, you either, are, you got, you have two decisions. When you watch your place burn to the ground, am I going to do it or am I not? <laughs> I mean, there's two, there's two, you know, options. But in the day to day, when you're not faced with a crisis, you have a thousand options in front of you. And so I think that's a little bit harder. And for a CEO, when you have fewer options, yeah, you're just kind of forced into it. So I guess then you're forced into asking for help. But I think it's so much richer if when you have the thousand options that you ask for help and you learn how to do that along the way. And that practice is very humbling, first of all, um, but it's also very rich. It creates very intimate relationships with other people who can help you. And I think it also gives you a much deeper appreciation for the work you have done because you realize that, you know, you do have things to offer other people, but you still need help. You, like it gives you a bigger vision. I'm going to get bigger. I'm going to get better. I'm going to, there's more things for me to do. And asking for help is one of those ways that I think it expands your horizons. Um, we noticed in your, some of, in your LinkedIn profile, for example, that you're also very passionate about asking hard questions. Clearly asking for help is a form of a hard question. So I was wondering, what's the best, hardest question anybody has ever asked you? Um, let's just say specifically in in the context of business. Gosh, you know, that's that's really difficult. I guess, you know, one of the questions I ask my clients all the time is, they want to do this, they want to do this. Oh, you know, um, someone else is doing this, and I, and I always say, that sounds great. We could do that for you. I'm sorry, why are we doing this? You know, and I have to do that a little bit to myself too. It's like, these things sound good and you can get busy doing something, but I do appreciate the person who says, yeah, why do you want to do that? Or when someone comes back and says to me, what do you want to be famous for? And I think that's a really good question. And it's something I've had to, you know, struggle with. So I think that you may be good at a lot of things, or you may um, have a lot of aspirations, but in the end, you know, what do you want to be famous for? Is it for who you are? or for what you do. And as a CEO, you know, especially with a digital firm, of course, I want there to be some fame about what I do and, and the systems that I built. But really at the end of the day, do you wanna be famous for who you are or for what you do? And I think that question, um, I, I had a very good strategist who, who um, asked that of me one time. And I thought that, that, is, that is really interesting. And I had another strategist who said to me, what is one word that is true that describes you but that is not positive that someone would say about you. And I was like, 
wow, that, that is crazy. And not that it's a negative word, but what, what, what's something that, you know, it's not positive, <laughs> right? And uh, she made me ask five different people who were close to me. One, my husband, somebody who was a very long-term friend, someone who's a newer friend, someone who is a colleague, and someone who is reports to me. And I thought that was a riveting question. And just for example, um, one person um, who's a colleague of mine said, um, uh, um, uh, what, it, was like, it was the opposite. I can't remember the word she used, but it was the opposite of organized. Like it was like fly by the seat of your pants or something like that. And I thought that's so interesting because very few people know that about me is that I am incredibly, incredibly organized until there's stress. And then I, it all falls apart. Like that's the first thing that goes for me under stress. And then she followed up and she goes, I don't think that that's really your natural gift. And I see that's why you've hired who you hired around you. And I'm like, oh man, that was so great. And my husband said, um, non-habitual. And that was really helpful for me because I realize that sometimes what I struggle with is everybody's sense of like how you should be as a CEO or, uh, you know, a, a person who is a fantastic habits and, you know, all of these, you know, all of these things we put up on crazy pedestals. Those are really hard for me because they're like, oh, we'll just do that at the same time every day. Nothing for me happens at the same time every day. Nothing. And so if I just keep trying to force myself into that system, but when he said that word, it's not really positive or negative or it's just true. And people would take that maybe as a slight but it was so eye-opening to me. So I think asking people a little bit deeper about how other people perceive you or, you know, what are your strengths? And it's not a weakness, but what are some ways that you would, you, you would be described that are true, but maybe not necessarily the thing that you, you love to glom onto? And those have been some very good questions that I think have helped me grow a lot as a CEO and as a person. Wow. So kind of tagging on that, is there a quote, we should all be asking ourselves this question kind of question that could benefit other leaders, other CEOs? Well, I, I think all learning starts from some, from self-reflection. <laughs> and um, one of my very, very respected colleagues, Anise Kavanaugh, talks about the impact that you want to have. And I think when we feel out of joint with ourselves, out of step in our leadership, um, maybe, gosh, that conversation didn't come off the way I want it to come off or, or anything. Um, or maybe you feel like, gosh, is the company going the wrong direction? Like, where's your culture? Like, right, any of these feelings, which we have at many, many different times. Self-reflection, being awake and alive to how you're feeling in the moment can bring you back to what she would lead me into, which is, well, what is your intention? You know, and uh, what is important to me right now? And what, it, it, who does that serve? Who am I trying to serve? And most importantly, am I having the kind of impact that I want to have? And if I'm not, then we know that we need to go back and circle around. Because you could be doing the very best and the results are not good. That's not on you. But sometimes we are actually bringing things into a room that don't need to be brought into a room. The energy um, even the way that we say things, um, we may be getting it done, which CEOs like to do, get it done, <laughs> you know, um, but we may not be having the impact that we want to have. And I think that's a very good question we need to be asking ourselves. And I think that only comes if you're willing to be, you know, self-reflective, because if it's going wrong, the next question you have to ask yourself is, okay, well, I did that wrong. What now? How do I change that? How do I get honest about, you know, I came, I came in hot to this meeting and 
I said some things, you know, maybe I didn't mean to put it that way. Or, um, you know, just, I, I can see that I just, ha- I could see it. It leaked on your face. I just had the impact I did not want to have, <laughs> you know, and being able to say, okay, well, that's not what I was trying to do. That's not how I was trying to serve you and how I was trying to serve myself. So let's back up and let's say, okay, what, what now, how, how do we, how do we change gears? And, and that freedom of being able to say, I, I always have the ability to change the way I show up and the energy I bring into a room so that I can have, you know, the impact that I want to have. Shifting back over to brands and marketing, do you find that brands have trouble with this as well? Figuring out what's their purpose. I see a lot of brands are kind of all over the place. You know, they jump on every latest trend. What do you think about that? Well, absolutely. My work, if anybody who knows me knows exactly what I'm about to say. And that is that um, there is a journey for any brand in which they decide uh, who their most ideal client is. And when they say, you know, our product or service is for everybody, I will assure you it is for nobody, right? So brands have a lot of fear. They, they experience a lot of FOMO, right? I, I want to miss out. I don't want to not get this demographic or this person or whatever, but you, your product or service is not for everybody. And you need to find out who it is for, who, again, just like as a CEO, who do you serve and who do you serve best, right? Um, and it may not be who you think it is. So I think for brands, where how this um, uh, emerges and how this needs to be solved is by coming back to very, very strong persona development. Who are the people you most ideally serve? And um, they're also the people who love what you do and get the most out of what you do and are willing to pay for it because it's very valuable to them. And it's not a question of money. It's a question of when can you help me get this done, right? And whether that's a pair of shoes that I really want to wear, when can you make me feel like that, like me wearing those shoes? Or whether it's a coaching service, well, when when can you get started helping me address this issue? I mean, it could be, you know, a market research project. When can you help us address the multicultural, you know, uh, uh, realities that our brand misses? I don't care if it's a, you know, a $15 product, a $300 product, or $300,000 product. You have to be able to uh, uh, understand that persona and understand what are their persistent problems and what are their newly emerging problems so that you can speak to them directly and that you can really start narrowing your brand story, your brand narrative and your actual marketing message down to something that really relates to them and, 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 and shows them, earns their respect by building that rapport and saying, I get you and I'm willing to not get all these other people so that I can really get you. I'm gonna focus on how we best serve you as a brand because you're what's important to us. And so I see brands just all over the place and they don't want to miss out on money and that fear keeps them from actually missing out on the real money, which is serving the people that they really are best at serving. You tweeted recently um, how to be unignorable. So I absolutely love unignorable. I caught that and I'm like, ah. So once you've established the persona um, and now knowing that the whole world has just crowded into this virtual space, do you have like a top three, for example, on how to be unignorable in this pandemic slash post-pandemic world? Well, first of all, I'll give a shout out to uh, Peter Leviton of Saatchi and Saatchi and Nike and all other kinds of fame and good friend of mine. And uh, he, he consults with agencies and um, 
that's really came from a conversation I had with him. And uh, so when we were talking and just really, you know, shooting it back and forth to each other about what does this mean to be unignorable as a brand? Um, you know, it is about being bold um, and it is about showing up the way you truly want to show up and about narrowing your actual uh, message, right? So getting very, uh, getting very clear. On the other hand, the piece that you brought up was on the virtual stage, and I would add a very noisy stage. There's, you know, everybody's a dime and dozen, right? It's very hard to get heard. What you have to do is you have to be visible. And unfortunately, a lot of companies um, are not visible, and a lot of professionals are not visible, right? They're doing the things that they think they should be doing, checking lists off, but they're not really showing up um, and they're not looking at the right things to measure to be seen by anybody. And then the other piece of it is once, it, even if they pay, which they can pay to get seen, they're putting out such a salesy message that there's no realization that nobody wants to be sold to. And that is just an absolute truth. You're driving to work and you don't want to hear messages like, hey, do this and hurry up and now and, you know, we, we, we turn off, but then we come into the office and somehow we think, oh, that's the message I'm going to write. And I joke around with people all the time. It's just like this weekend, just for kicks, are you going to go to a used car lot just to talk with them? Just so you can, you know, use about six hours to chat and, you know, let them talk at you. No, we don't. Because in our society, that's kind of a joke of like the person who's going to co-op your time, interrupt everything that you're doing and shove something down your throat. And nobody likes that. But then we come out of our car, get in our seat, and then we start doing that to other people. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what is going on? So either they, they can't get visible, partly because their message isn't genuine, no one wants to look at it, or even if they do get visible, um, you know, again, nobody wants to see that message. And so even if you pay, you get ignored. And so I think it does kind of cycle back to the other issue that I talked about with persona development is about really being rock solid about who you are and who you serve and being okay with letting other people not look at you, right? You need to get visibility on a particular stage, but that means you can't be on all the other stages at the same time. You need to know which one is gonna be the most important to you. And then that makes you unignorable because you're not saying the exact same thing that everybody else is saying, and you're not showing up the way that everybody else is showing up. Absolutely, and customers are only getting more sensitive to this. Um, there, there's so much out there we're, and we're sifting through a lot, mm -hmm. a lot faster. Mm -hmm. So you just know when something jumps out and it's speaking to you, right? right? right. Yeah, the average consumer in America looks at 16,000 ads per day. That's the report that just came out this year. So when you think about that, it, we, when I say noisy, I mean a noisy market. <laughs> and, you know, you got to think about it. You, it's all over. You get up in the morning, you may not even be out of bed before you pick up your phone. You see the Apple, you know, you see like how many, how many logos did you just see on your apps? You know, how many messages are competing for? How many notifications are coming in? You know, everybody's notification has a brand. You know, you go to the bathroom, you're seeing a mechanism, you know, you pick up toothpaste, you're seeing a message. It's like everybody's competing for your attention. It starts from the moment you get up until you go to bed at night. And what people want is something that's refreshing and true and honest and maybe can help people turn an idea on its head and maybe think about something a little bit differently and solve one of their problems not the me wanting to tell you what year I started my business in. 
Like nobody cares, right? So how can we really focus on the thing that is going to, can we lead with the thing that is the most helpful? We're, I mean, let's be honest, we're dying to know about the, the fifth of five girls traveling the world. I would love to know. Um, we've seen in your copy, the word curiosity pops up a lot. I would be interested in knowing how that experience with your sisters performing, <laughs> that sense of curiosity, how that has informed um, how you do business, engaging people and getting to, as you say, the heart of the matter, the truth of matters to be a good marketer. Right. Well, you know, I did have an unusual childhood. And um, in the end, I went to four different high schools in three different countries. And, uh, you know, I'm very good at making friends quick because, you know, pretty soon we won't be friends and I'll be moving. So <laughs> I'm pretty good at working a room, uh, kissing babies, shaking hands. And I, I know how to, how to really spot some genuine people quickly. I think I've learned a lot of really great uh, networking skills there. Um, and I also learned to very quickly value people, you know, don't take anybody for granted because, hey, we're going to be moving. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think those are some interesting things from my childhood. Also, I'm the, the fifth of five girls. And as you can imagine, that was quite an experience. Um, there was not a lot of uh, personal bathroom time. But <laughs> other than that, um, you know, the fact of the matter is that when you are the fifth of five, you're really, you, you're born into a gang. And so there's a real deep sense of belonging that you just get as a gift. Um, so no matter what you do, and believe me, I've done some pretty stupid things, um, you know, your gang still loves you. And there's a lot of freedom, I think, that I've learned from that. Uh, the sisters were a coalition and granted, sometimes the coalition is against you, but for the most part, they're for you. <laughs> and when you grow up, they're very much for you. So that's the good news. Uh, but we had a really unusual uh, childhood. My parents were missionaries and, uh, you know, we sang together. We were like basically the the Christian Von Trapp family, you know, just, you know, matching dresses, the works, I can do a flannel graph with the best of them. I can run a puppet show, I can, you know, so there's a lot of interesting skills I've got. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think when in growing up, that curiosity was there, because my parents, um, you know, in growing up in a different country, they were not the kind of expats who were like, let's be American. My parents like, okay, well, this is where we live, this is what we do. And I think that freedom really allowed me to explore that culture. And it gave me really, at the end of the day, a sense of empathy. Like my way is not always the right way. And this sense of a worldview where you are not at the center of it. In fact, you're a tiny little microcosm and, um, and your way is not the one that everybody in the room is you know, willing to adopt is I think something that in the long run really helps, right? So eventually I got a degree in cultural anthropology and I think you can see why, but I am interested in why humans work the way we do, why we have like tacit agreements in, in society um, to do certain things. And even when it comes to marketing, I refer to myself as a marketing anthropologist to kind of unpack, how do we agree to work with ads? How do we agree to work with marketing? How do we, because we do all day long, we agree to work in a certain way with salespeople, with companies, with, you know, uh, you know, promoting products and becoming an, a brand evangelist for people. All of these things are wrapped up in our culture. And so, you know, from living in several different um, in several different countries, I can see that people deal with this issue very differently. Some, you know, countries have a very 
adverse reaction to uh, advertising or formalized advertising. And some of them's like, well, it's the norm is what it is, you know? So I think that that, that curiosity, you know, for me comes from the sense of, you know, I feel very secure that I belong. So I'm not worried about that. And so I can go far, far, far beyond my borders and get curious and not be in the know um, to be able to see some really beautiful things because I'm not afraid of, of losing myself or my, my position. I feel like my position is always up for grabs. It's okay to not be right. And I think that's part of living in a third culture when I was growing up in Spain, I'm not Spanish, but yet my American friends don't feel like I'm American. And then I go to boarding school in Germany and I'm here there with all kinds of expat kids or diplomat kids. Well, I'm not a diplomat, you know, they're all rich, we're poor. You know, it's like, I don't belong there, but I do belong here. And it's like all of this constant moving, you know, in that no matter where you go, that's really not your home in one sense, but actually for a lot of people that would just throw them and say, oh, this is disgusting. I don't belong anywhere. And I just think, you know what? That's actually really liberating. I kind of belong everywhere um, because I belong to myself and I belong to my original gang, which is my tribe, my family. And now as colleagues, I am a firm, firm, firm believer in having that kind of a close knit tribe with uh, other CEOs, with, um, with my employees and especially my, my management team. Um, and, you know, having that, that tribe, I, I'm part of a one very, very powerful one, which is women in research. And uh, man, we, we just have each other's backs, you know? And so I don't care if it's a group of colleagues, a family, uh, you know, uh, a club, I don't care what you call it. It's a tribe and you need one. <laughs> you need at least one. And I've been very, very fortunate in my lifetime to have many of them. And uh, I think that's incredibly grounding. Um, and it is that sense of, um, constant curiosity. Oh, that's interesting. This is how this view group views things. How could I um, not be a different person here in the sense like, you know, you think about uh, two sides of a coin, you know, it's, so you're not being two-faced, but there are multiple sides of you and you can show up different ways and belong in different ways to different groups. So I think that's curiosity at the very bottom of it that, that really keeps driving me and propelling me toward, uh, you know, learning from other people and, and never thinking that, that my worldview is the only worldview. So going, going back to what you were saying about research and, and I can tell that you're a really research-driven marketer, which I love. What are some of the tools that you use or that you think are most helpful um, for companies or, or just tools that you employ to, to dig in and really understand a, a culture of, of a consumers? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's all kinds of uh, things that that companies use from surveys, um, you know, to looking at their own KPIs, looking at, you know, what's going on on their, uh, on the web, who's looking at their social channels. I, you know, we're a platinum HubSpot uh, shop. And so I can go all day long about actual reports. But at the end of the day, I think there is a big push that I have, obviously, as a, a cultural anthropologist, so social scientist, right, that I want to know a little bit deeper um, that why people do things. And so because of that, I personally just have a deep love of ethnographies or more like focus group, you know, uh, very open-ended types of questions. I find those to be deeply meaningful to help us move, uh, you know, a process forward. There is absolutely a time and a place for quantitative. There's, there, It's not a vice versa at all. But I think just in me personally, I'm just like, oh, I get, you know, culturally, I get so excited about, uh, you know, the focus group or the face-to-face, you know, type of research where people just finally kind of 
they, they don't even realize it. They finally quit acting and then they tell you what's really going on. And I, I, I think this is very, very important because there is a massive discrepancy between what people say they do and what people do, right? And so market research is constantly trying to figure out the, <laughs> the, the blurred lines here. It's what people report they'll do and what they actually do. And it's also the way that people explain, well, I bought this because it's a good deal and all these lot and logic three and logic four. And, and they're like, yes, because I'm a, such a logical person. No, you like the color orange and they made the box orange, but you can't admit that to yourself. And so you come up with a lot of interesting logical reasons why you did something, but that's not true. <laughs> so I love that. I love that. Um, just the whole notion there. I love unpacking that. And, um, you know, some of the people that I love to listen to most are people who really get very engrossed in deep ethnographies or even things in the market research industry like shop alongs or um, looking at buyer behavior like shopper insights and things like that. That's just personally a step that really gets me going. And there's such interesting high tech around that as well in terms of like catching eye motion. Like they, they can even see on an end cap, there's, you know, there's videos. And I don't mean like catch, you know, this is not privacy um, issues, not a raw video of you, but more of a video of, the actual things that are happening, where your eyeballs are going. Did your mouth turn up when you looked at a product? Did you get down and look at it? Did you have to put it up to your face because it's too tiny of a print? All these things that the data is capturing to understand what's happening here in the store, right? We've never been at a time in the history of, you know, of, of this modern society where we've had so much data about what people are going to do. And in fact, it's a little bit of a burden with the amount of data and companies are struggling right now. How do I make sense of this? I will say though, in terms of market research and data and how I work day to day in marketing is that a lot of people come to me and say, okay, well, you know, we want to measure this and measure this and this KPI. And, you know, they'll start at me with all this jargon, right? But they usually say that because they think that's what people are supposed to do who are in their position, right? And so I like to remind people that uh, the repeatability, which that's the R in our system, that's the last one. So when I think about our source system, just you know, give it an unfair plug here, but I don't care if they work with Little Bird Marketing, this is something anybody can crib. The S is strategy. You gotta know your persona. You gotta know the strategy. What are you trying to do and who are you trying to do it to and with? And then the organization, no marketing plan is gonna get executed. You can have ideas all day long. But unless they get executed, they're organized. Who's doing it? What day? Exactly on what platform? How many times are we going to use it? It has to get organized. Then it has to be accountable, which means that six months later, when someone goes, oh, I have a great idea. I'm going to do blah, blah, blah. And you're like, sounds good. But does it match with our strategy? And can it be organized? If not, we're not doing it. And it becomes a freedom for companies to begin to say no to marketing things. And that is a real powerful moment. And the R is last, it's repeatability saying, now that we finally got our act together and we've got all of this done in the right order, now we should look at these stats. Now we should look at the benchmarks. Now we should look at the research because we know that we have this in order. And so now this is gonna give us some freedom to be able to decide what not to do next year, maybe what to double down on. So in terms of market research, I, I, I love it all. And they're all interesting nerds out there. And I love talking with them. They're so smart. Um, I love being in a room where I'm not the smartest person, even by a long shot. So that's super, super fun. But I know there's a real struggle with their, you know, we have the data, but how are we going to use it? How are we going to implement this? And, and so 
I think that's where, where people live a lot. Like if you can't explain it to your mom, then it's probably not something you should be doing. <laughs> that's kind of my thought. Wonderful. Love it. Well, piggybacking on, on that wonderful explanation, where can everybody find you? Well, I always answer people on LinkedIn and I'm very fortunate to have an unusual name. So Priscilla McKinney, I'm not that hard to find. I'm on Twitter at Little Bird Mama and that's Little Bird M-O-M-M-A. Also everything littlebirdmarketing.com. We have so many free resources on our website. Um, you know, we're not for everybody, um, but we are for everybody. So if you want some free resources instead of working with us, we have them out there. We're not salesy, slimy people. If we can lead with helping, we can. Um, you know, then we will. So there's a lot out there, but people can always uh, find me on social media and reach out and have an actual conversation with me. I do the very best I can to help um, with any request out there and really make it personal. Priscilla, this has been really great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. Oh, I've had a, a lot of fun and I, I, I got grilled, but uh, I actually enjoyed the whole thing. <laughs> Thank you. This was fun. Hey guys, we hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, please share it with your friends and colleagues who also have to navigate this leadership stuff. As you can see, this project is about to be a mini masterclass in every episode. Best part, it's free. So if you like it, please do us a favor and take a screenshot, share it on social with the hashtag 100CEO. That's 100CEO. That way we can say thanks and share it in our stories. And finally, if you've got some insights you'd like to share and you're a CEO, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us at 100ceoproject.com or on LinkedIn at the 100ceoproject. Until next time, keep leading by example.